of James. I have waited many, many years to teach the book of James because I really do believe that this book is largely mistaught in the vast majority of churches. I went on sermon audio several times the last few weeks and just looked up teaching series on the book of James. And they all seem to run down the same line of thought. And across the board, I couldn't help but think, no, that's not it. I think that GCA is going to be able to talk about the book of James now because this is one of the few churches I've ever been a part of that actually has a solid Israelology. We actually understand the differences in the Writings that are specifically written to the Jews and to the Israelites versus the writing of Paul specifically to Gentile churches. 
everybody who teaches the book of James by and large seems to try to harmonize James and Paul. The reason they try to harmonize it is because they think that it's all written to the same audience. And if it is written to the same audience, then the Bible contradicts itself. James is full of imperatives, constant imperatives. We're going to get into that. And yet, according to Martin Luther, there's not a bit of gospel in the book of James. In fact, he called it a right straw-y epistle. He said it was an epistle of straw. There are early church fathers who didn't want to include James in the canon because it was so dramatically different than the gospel that we know and love of God's free and sovereign grace. James is very, very familiar with, you can tell it by his writing, he's very familiar with the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. In fact, to understand James, you almost have to look at the way Proverbs is constructed. If you look at the book of Proverbs, you'll see how it kind of jumps from topic to topic and just gives short, little, almost pithy kind of commands and instruction about wisdom. Right away, James is going to pick it up and say, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He's, he's right into the wisdom literature motif. He's also very influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there are some folks who argue that James is the most Jewish book of the entire New Testament. And that's completely true. Uh, Matthew, I think, is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. This is the most Jewish of the epistles. Right away, James is going to tell us who he's writing to. And of all those sermons that I've listened to and all the commentaries that I've read the last few months in preparation, almost none of them seem to pay attention to what James plainly says about his target audience. We've talked when we were reading the book of Hebrews. We've talked when we were teaching through Matthew. We've talked about the fact that the first century Jewish church in Jerusalem is a completely unique entity in the history of the world and the church. There is only one generation that ever was the generation of Jews who after 1,400 years of law-keeping heard about Christ and what Christ finished right there in their own city, right outside their own city walls. They're witness to it. They're aware of it. They know who he is. They know what he did. And now the theology is beginning to develop around the sacrifice of Christ and what he accomplished. And there's that first generation of Jewish Christians. When I was in New York a couple weeks ago, I taught about proofs, evidences that the Bible is true. Those messages are now up on our website and on my blog. And one of the things that I kept emphasizing for a couple nights in a row is that Christianity, and this, this is just kind of hard to conceive of if Christianity is not true, Christianity got its original foothold in Jerusalem, which is the very place that would know whether Jesus lived, 
whether Jesus did miracles, whether Jesus was considered a prophet and had followers, whether Jesus died, whether the preachment went out that he raised again, Jerusalem would know. To my way of thinking, if this is a made-up religion, if some guys got in a room after Jesus died and said, hey, look, guys, we've clearly backed the wrong horse. He's dead, and he stayed dead. Maybe we'll steal the body or something. But in order to keep our religion going, and in order to give us some kind of credibility so that we don't look like fools in the midst of all this, let's go spread our religion. But we have to spread it outside Jerusalem because the people in Jerusalem are, are witnesses to it. They're going to know. They're going to know whether this is true or not. When Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, Jesus, a man whom you knew, uh, he was stating a fact. You Jerusalem leaders, you knew him. You watched him. You saw him do miracles that no man can do. You're the ones who crucified him with wicked hands. You know all of this. This is factual. The only way that that can get a foothold in Jerusalem is if they are continuing to tell facts. That's right. Peter did not stand up on the day of Pentecost and say, believe me because Jesus lives in my heart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart, so just believe me because I'm convinced, and so you really ought to be convinced. That's not what he did. He stood up on the day of Pentecost and started with facts. Jesus of Nazareth, you know where he's from. You know what he did. You know he was among you. You know he did miracles. You know he taught. You know all that. You know you crucified him. Well, the final fact that he lists is, and he rose again, because it wasn't appropriate for him to be held by death. And then he launches right into the Davidic scriptures and says, David even talked about not letting my soul languish in hell, and he wasn't talking about himself. He tells the Jerusalem leaders, look, David's sepulcher is right over there. We know where David is, so he's clearly not writing about himself. He's writing about the Christ, the Christ raised. That story, that preachment, that theology first became prevalent in Jerusalem. And as I keep saying, if they're lying about it, well, then they're going to go outside of Jerusalem to tell that story. You can go to some place in India and say, hey, trust us, there's this guy in Jerusalem who was dead, and he's living again. And people are likely to go, oh, oh that's an interesting story. I'm always amazed by the folks who tell stories of miraculous healings or people being raised from the dead or Benny Hinn-type miracles. But they never exactly tell you where that happened. And it's always someplace in remotest Africa. Some guy got up. Well, Luke writes in Acts that right away the preaching of he is risen happened within 50 days of the time that Jesus died. At Pentecost, the entire preachment was ready to go. The entire theology and doctrine was fully formed. And he stood up on the day of Pentecost and pronounced facts. Okay, now he's pronouncing facts to a Jewish audience in Jerusalem, this Jewish audience has been keeping the law for 1,400 years. And Peter is making a convincing case 
that the Messiah is now here, and it was Jesus. And that means that you don't need the temple anymore, and you don't need the high priest anymore, and you don't need the sacrifices anymore. You don't need anything but Jesus. He's the full Savior. He's the perfect Savior. He's the Christ, the Messiah to come. He's the one sent by God who was dead and rose again. So now you've got a whole generation of people whose entire religious history is based in keep the law. That's all they know. All they know is do stuff because the law is all about do stuff. So you've got this generation of people who don't know anything about Jesus. All they know is the law of Moses. And then Jesus is proclaimed to them. And then some of them start to believe in Jesus. And it's hard for them, extremely hard for them, to extricate themselves from the traditions and the background of the law. That's why the writer of Hebrews had to write to Hebrews. A Hebrew writing to Hebrews saying, now that you've come to Christ, you can't go back. There's nothing to go back to. Because he was writing to a unique generation of people. James likewise is writing to that unique generation of people. He's writing to believing Jews who have undergone persecution in Jerusalem that started with Stephen. And then James, the younger brother of John, was killed by Herod right behind that. And then there was a scattering of the Jews who believed in Jesus, but they're out of Jerusalem. Eventually, a large number of them moved to Rome. And then between the believing Jews and the unbelieving Jews, there are riots in the street until finally the emperor throws all the Jews out of Rome. And so this all begins, very, very importantly, in Jerusalem among people who have a long-standing tradition of keep the law and now they believe in Jesus. And they don't automatically just change their mind. Oh, yippee, no more law. It's all Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Instead, they try to combine Jesus with their traditions. Now, that's still happening today. How many of you have come from a different church tradition before you came to Sovereign Grace? Okay, was that an easy transition for you, or do you still carry some of those traditions? Karen immediately went, no, not easy. It's not easy. In fact, you'll find yourself very naturally following some of those traditions that have been ingrained in you by your upbringing, by your church, by your family. I still struggle with it. There are still things that I think, and, and I have to pause. I talked about it a bit last week, that I have to pause and think, now, is that strictly true? Is that really biblical? Or is that just something that I've been ingrained into? So you've got all these Jews scattered out of Jerusalem. The word for scattered is diaspora. That's the word James is going to use. Believing Jews who are the diaspora, who are scattered from all 12 tribes out of Jerusalem. That's who he's writing to. He is not writing to Todd. I don't know why I picked you specifically, but he's not writing to Todd. He's not writing to Leon. He's not writing to Micah. 
because he's writing to the Jews who have kept the law, who now believe in Jesus, have been scattered out of Jerusalem, and the early formation of Christianity is now taking shape. Importantly, we'll talk in a minute about when the book of James was written, but it appears to have been written before Paul began writing, which means, very importantly, James was not contradicting Paul. The Pauline writing didn't exist yet. James was advancing the Jerusalem semi-legalist version of Christianity that was popular among the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, God is going to start eventually gathering Gentiles and then send Paul to teach the Gentiles. And Paul is going to say, no law, no legalism to the Gentiles who weren't at Mount Sinai, who don't know anything about that covenant, who aren't under the law to begin with. To those kind of people, Paul is adamant, no law, no circumcision, no part of the law. But when Paul goes to Jerusalem and meets those that are loving Jesus and at the same time zealous for the law, well, he doesn't compete with them. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't say, oh, no, no, you're all wrong. You're all wrong. You have to stop that immediately. Instead, he takes a vow, sacrifices an animal, and goes into the temple. Because early Jerusalem Christianity is different than developed theological, doctrinal, Gentile Christianity. So we being Gentiles learn our Christianity from the Pauline doctrine and the Pauline teaching. But if you're looking for Pauline teaching in the book of James, you're not going to find it. Because not only did it not exist, not only does James not even mention it or bring it up, I sort of think that if he knew that Paul had already written and that Paul had already said no law, well, then when he gets to, I'll show you my faith by my works, by the time he gets there, he would define some of that terminology. He would try to show that he and Paul are not contradicting each other. But they're not contradicting each other because two different audiences at two different periods of time and early Jerusalem Christianity is very different than Pauline Christianity among the Gentiles. And it's okay to say that. Now that's the reason that a lot of the early church fathers didn't feel that the book of James ought to be in the New Testament. Because they were fearful that Christians would come along and read it and think, oh, this applies to us. And even to this day, there are plenty of people reading the book of James saying, oh, this applies to us. Now you know the Old Testament is written about Israel. It's not written about the church. It's about Israel. But, as I keep saying over and over again, it's not about us, but it's for us. Paul's very clear to say these things were written for our admonition. These things are written to teach, to instruct us, so that we can understand the development of the religion that we claim to follow so that we can understand the Jewish roots of Christianity, so that we can understand that Jesus was a Jewish Messiah who was long predicted by Israel's prophets. So it's written not to us, but for us. I would say the same thing about the book of James. The book of James is not to us, 
but it's for us. You're going to find some stuff in here that you think, that's really good, that's really helpful. I think James's writing about watch your tongue is vital to grown-up mature Christians. We really ought to be watching the way we talk and the things that we say. Okay, that's good. But as I said, James is full of short, proverbial kind of statements and just lots and lots and lots of imperative, imperative, do this, do this, do this, which is how the law reads, which is how he imported that early legalistic kind of thinking into first century Christianity and then wrote to Jews saying, live out your Christianity like this. It's a very practical book. It is about live out your Christianity this way. But technically, even though I can preach the gospel from James, as I'm going to demonstrate over the course of the next few months, we're going to find some gospel that we can preach inspired by James. But the book of James by itself isn't written to us, and I tend to agree with Martin Luther. Not a whole lot of gospel in this book. So if you just approach this book without any kind of critical thinking, without any historic thinking, without context, if you just approach the book and your preacher just says, and this is for Christians, read the book of James, well then what you're going to end up with is a bunch of legalistic Christians. And you know that I'm Mr. Anti-Legalist. I'm Mr. Iconoclast. I go around knocking down people's idols. And so I want to put the book of James in its proper historic context so that you keep in mind who the book is written to and you understand that it's not written to you, but it can be helpful for you. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I'm still introducing. There are three people, actually four, in the New Testament by the name of James. So we have to kind of narrow down which James it is. Is it James the son of Alphaeus or is it James the son of Zebedee? But Jesus also has a brother named James. And I'm convinced that it's the brother who wrote this epistle. His other brother, also very Jewish, wrote the book of Jude. These are, of course, half-brothers to him. They don't share the same dad. But... His family, his brothers, and in that way, I'm kind of impressed with the book of James. Because if it was me, or if it was you, or or especially if it was that guy, um, we would immediately start writing, listen to me because I'm the brother of Jesus. Listen to me because I have family authority. Me and Jesus, we're right in there. Same mom. And if you thought you could pray to Mary so that you could get Jesus to do stuff, well, then pray to Mary to get me to do stuff because I'm important. James doesn't do that. He starts right out and calls himself a bond slave. And he doesn't even mention that he's brother of Jesus. I think that's impressive because I would have... Thought Again, I'm always looking for evidences that this is the genuine article. These are eyewitnesses. I would think that if these were liars, then when he sat down to write his epistle, he would start right out with, I'm important. 
But he doesn't do that. So I believe it's, it's the brother. Now, I told you that Luther called this a no-gospel epistle, a right-straw-y epistle. No less than Eusebius said that it's a spurious work. Because once he saw the, the gospel that was being preached and taught by Paul, he couldn't find any of that in the book of James. And there was a certain amount of that early Gentilization of the church and a suppression of all things Jewish within the church, which is why Paul writes in Romans and even has to admonish the Gentiles not to boast against the natural seed. Because right away, as the Gentiles started coming in and realizing that they were chosen, they were also elect, there was a conflict that happened between the Jews and the Gentiles. Jerome said that it was a letter that someone else published under an apostle's name because he couldn't believe that it was the genuine article. He didn't want to see it in the canon, and so he tried to claim that it was pseudonymous. Anyway, written by a different person. (laughs) But then there are others like Origen and Athanasius and Augustine who recognized James as scripture, but they recognized it as scripture within its historic context. He being a genuine believer in Christ, and James being the brother of Christ, they saw that it had a credibility, even though he was technically not an apostle. James, during his lifetime, didn't even believe in his brother. It wasn't until he saw his brother risen from the dead that he was converted to Christianity away from legalistic Judaism. Which again is one of those things that I talk about a lot, the evidences that the Bible is true. There are people who changed cataclysmically because they came across something that utterly convinced them. And the thing that seems to utterly convince all these people to change is the resurrection. And the resurrected Lord came to James, his brother, and his brother believed. We're going to look at that. Now, I'm convinced that this book was written somewhere between 45, 48 A.D., even though there are some that argue that maybe 60 A.D., but 45 to 48 A.D. seems to fit, especially when you know the date that James was ultimately killed, well, then if it's 60 A.D., there's not a lot of time for him to have gotten all that writing in before he was killed. Now, if that's true, 45 to 48 A.D., it makes the book of James very, very early. But that's why I keep emphasizing that he wrote before Paul. So he was not writing contradictory to Paul. He wasn't arguing with Paul. He wasn't saying, oh, yeah, I know the Pauline theology, but here's the real deal. He wrote before Paul, and he was writing about Judaistic Christianity. I mentioned that there are a lot of imperatives in this book. Fifty-four pure imperatives in the Greek text of James, which is a book that only has 108 verses. So that's like half the book is just direct imperatives. Do this. Be like this. Do these things. Somebody look up 1 Corinthians 15, 7. 
I know you've all opened the book of James. We may actually get there this morning. Maybe not. We might. 1 Corinthians 15.7 is going to tell us that James saw the resurrected Christ. Christ appeared to his brother. You got that, Tom? Yes. What does it say? It says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So specifically, James is mentioned separately from the apostles. So we know it's not the apostolic James, who, by the way, was killed by Herod Agrippa in 44 AD, well before these things even appear to have been written. So we know it's not the son of Zebedee. We know it's not the son of thunder. We know that he's referring to James, a separate James from the apostolic James, because he appeared to James and all the apostles. He's a leader in the early church in Jerusalem, and we're going to see that this morning as we read several sections from the book of Acts. So he seems to be the best consideration as the author because he enjoyed that distinction in the early church, and he enjoyed considerable influence among the Jews. The book of James is obviously written by a Jew. There are 570 words in the vocabulary of James. He uses 570 different words. 73 of those words are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. His writing is unique. 46 of those 73 are found in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. So he's very, very familiar with the Greek Old Testament, especially, like I said, the wisdom books, Proverbs, wisdom literature. And so his style is very much like the wisdom literature. The book of James was written to stress a practical message about the Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, there's a lot of similarities with the Sermon on the Mount And in the end, it's really undeniable that James ought to be in our Bible because it is part of the historic record of how the early church developed, especially because the early church developed in Jerusalem. And so it's good to know that. You have to understand it. You have to understand it in its historic context, and it certainly belongs in the canon of the Bible. The problem is far too many people try to make it because of its placement in the Bible, after all the Pauline epistles, too many people try to make it equal with the Pauline epistles, and that just leads to confusion. There's just no way to harmonize, although I will tell you one very popular way. If I've heard this once, I've heard it a hundred times. People say, well, Paul writing about justification is talking about justification before God. Whereas James, when talking about justification, is talking about being justified before other men. And that's why they don't contradict each other. Do you really need to be justified before other men? I mean, I like Leon a lot. But what can Leon do for me in terms of my justification? No, they're both using the same Greek words because they're both talking about the same thing. And James's approach, coming out of the law as it does, is to say that you are justified by your works. And Paul says that you are justified without the works of the law. Those are two entirely different things because they are written to two entirely different audiences. And until you get that, you're just going to be confused. 
All right, so Tom, look up Matthew 13, 55. We've read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 7 already. Somebody look up Acts 1, 14. Todd, would you do that? And then Micah, look up Acts 12, 17. Somebody else want to read? Josiah? Look up Galatians 1, 18 and 19 for a moment. We're going to see many of these references to James, and we're going to get some sense of who he is and what kind of authority he wielded in the early church. First off, the verse that I gave to, uh, to Tom is just going to state that he is the oldest half-brother of Jesus. Go ahead and read that. And look how dutifully he stood up to read. I mean, you, you have to appreciate that. I need the exercise. I'm an old man. <laughs> is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Okay, so he was well known. He was already known as being a brother of Jesus. They already knew that he was the carpenter's son. And so he's already known in the community as being the brother of Jesus. James is present at the very beginning of the book of Acts. When the Holy Spirit comes, James is in the group. Todd's going to read that for us. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. So even though there's three Jameses in that verse... By the time this all occurs, James is already present. Later, he becomes a, a leader in the Jerusalem congregation. That's Acts 12, 17 that I believe I gave Micah to read. And then Galatians 1, 18 to 19 is going to say the same thing from a slightly different angle. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison and he said, report these things to James and to the brethren that he left and went to another place. So he says, go and report these things. These are important things. I've been let out of prison by an angel. Go report these things to James and to the other brethren. So again, there's the brethren, but then there's James who seems to be holding this important uh, leadership position among the Jerusalem church. Galatians 1, 18 and 19, Josiah then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So we know it's not the apostle James because he specifically says we saw James, the Lord's brother. So we didn't see any of the other apostles, but we saw James, the Lord's brother. So by this point in time, by the time Paul is beginning his ministry, by the time Peter is beginning to convert Gentiles, James already holds a position of authority in Jerusalem. Because every time something significant happens, they go report it to James. And then Paul, of course, as you know from our studies through the Corinthian letters, Paul is very quick to take up offerings to take back to the poor at Jerusalem. But there's also a certain amount of tension between James and Peter. And I find that really, really interesting. Uh, turn to 
Acts 21 for a moment. And then we'll talk about the Peter tension. Acts 21, starting at verse 15. Let's do that. Acts 21, 15. I still hear pages rattling. That's my problem with all these digital phone-based Bibles. I can't hear your phone rattle. It needs like a ding when it hits the right verse or something, so I know that. Starting at verse 15, and after these days, we got ready and we started on our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing, with whom we were going to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James. And all the elders were present. A couple of times in the book of James, you're going to need to understand this word elders. He's talking about the leaders in the Jerusalem church. He's mostly talking Peter, John, James here. So when we get to the point in James where he says, if any of you is sick, let him call for the elders and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Unfortunately, folks read that today and think, oh, that just means the elders of the church. But we have plenty of evidence that the elders in Jerusalem, when called on to pray over people, that people were healed. Whereas today, just because you call elder so-and-so and they come pray, there's no guarantee that they're going to be healed. And then people say, the Bible's not true because the Bible says call for the elders and the prayer of faith is going to heal the sick and they didn't get healed. It's because, again, people have simply misunderstood the way that the Bible uses the word elders, specifically elders at Jerusalem, who are the people that James is talking about. Okay, I've jumped way ahead, but since we're on the word elders, I want to throw that out because the Bible's not untrue. Our application of it is. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother... How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. Okay, so what group is James writing to? He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. Paul goes to Jerusalem to see him and he says to Paul, see how many Jews there are thousands that believe in Jesus and they're zealous for the law. That's that first generation of Jewish believers who are still being heavily influenced by their 1,400-year history and tradition of the law. And that's the group that James is in charge of, and that's the group that James is writing to. When they heard it, they began glorifying God. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed And they are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, 
telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Okay, we know that's not true. Paul never did that. He said the Gentiles should not be circumcised, that the Gentiles should not follow the law. But what did he do with Timmy? With Timmy. That <laughs> fell out of my mouth. But what did he do with Timothy, whose mother was a Jewess? He circumcised him. So the rumor has gotten back to Jerusalem about Paul, but it's also not true about Paul. They've been told about you that you're teaching Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. So here's thousands of Jews in Jerusalem who are zealous for the law and who walk by the customs. That's the audience that James is writing to. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to these things which they have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. So when Paul's among the Jews, who are law-keeping Jews in Jerusalem, he submits, and he shaves his head, and he takes a vow, and he kills an animal, and he goes into the temple. Why? Because he's among the Jews. And he has the freedom, as he keeps saying, that when he's among those with no law, he's like one with no law. When he's among those who have law, he's like one under the law. Why? So that he could win the more to Christ. So when he's among those that are legalists, notice he doesn't even argue with them. He doesn't say, no, no, Jesus, that's all you need. He understands that these are Jewish believers who are making the transition to Jesus from their 1,400 years of law keeping and their customs, and their traditions. And they didn't just get rid of them overnight. It takes a long time to extricate yourself from all that stuff. So when he's among them, he acts like one of them so that he can bring them along in the things of Christ. I think, me personally, that Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. Because the writer of Hebrews doesn't name himself by name, and because the language is a little different than Pauline language, people argue that it wasn't written by Paul, but the theology is clearly Pauline. Some folks say that it was Barnabas under Paul's tutelage. Either way, Paul, who is trying to bring the Jews along in the doctrine of Christ, I believe is behind the letter to the Hebrews instructing the Hebrews that now that they've come to Christ, there's nothing to go back to because now there's a better covenant and a better high priest and a better sacrifice. So when Paul is in Jerusalem among the Jews who are steeped in their tradition, he's as one of them. Starting at verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles, this is James speaking, who have believed we wrote having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols, notice he starts right off with an imperative, and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself, that's ritual purification according to legalistic Old Testament purifying rules, purifying himself along with them, he went into the temple 
giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until a sacrifice was offered for each one of them. He killed animals. And that's after the cross. Why? Because of the Jewish religion in Jerusalem. To whom James wrote. Are you getting a feel for this? Okay, one person has a feel for this. The rest of you, no idea what I'm talking about. According to best tradition, James was so righteous, so convinced of his own self-righteousness that his knees were like camel's knees, according to people who saw him, because he spent so much time on his knees. He was very, very committed to law-based self-righteousness. Turn to the book of Acts. Turn to Acts 15 again. You're already in Acts. Go to Acts 15. This I find really, really interesting. We're nearly done for the morning, and I haven't gotten out of my introduction yet. So technically, none of this counts against my time. You laugh too hard at that. Uh, 15, let's start at like verse 13. Yeah, I could start at 1. All right, I got nowhere to be. We'll be out of here by 4. Some men came down from Judea, and they began teaching the brethren, saying, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Where did they come down from? Judea, Jerusalem. That's the area they came from and told Gentiles that they needed to be circumcised and keep the custom of Moses. Why? Because that's what they believed in Jerusalem. That was the Jerusalem form of Christianity. Some law and some Christ. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, their brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Notice the distinction between the apostles and the elders. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. This is the Jerusalem thinking. They're Pharisees. They used to be Pharisees who have now embraced Christ, but they still have a head full of these traditions and these customs. And so their thinking is if Gentiles have come into the church now, since the church belongs to us, since this is a Jewish enterprise, well, then they have to become Jewish like us. They have to be circumcised and they have to keep the customs of Moses. This was the common thinking in Jerusalem. Verse 6, and the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know how in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart 
bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And all the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done among them or done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, who stands up? James. James James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will restore its ruins, and I will restore it, in order that the rest of mankind, the Gentiles, may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he's still read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren, who are the elders, to the brethren at Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same thing by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us who lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you... Abstain from things sacrificed to idols, abstain from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from these things, you do well. Farewell. Okay, that, that shows you the distinction, the difference between the Jerusalem church, again, and the Gentile church. And even those in the Jerusalem church, under James, recognized that the Gentiles were a different breed. The Gentiles, though they didn't have the law, received the Spirit of God. And so, all I'm getting at, over and over and over again, is I'm trying to say, the book of James was not written to us, 
the directives that are in it, the imperatives that are in it, are written to a particular people, the first century Jewish believers, who were also zealous for the law and caught in their historic traditions. And it took time for Jews to fully embrace the doctrine of Christ's total sufficiency. They all believed initially that they still had to do more stuff. And so, of course, James would write to them and say, do more stuff. One last thing. Turn to Galatians. Turn to Galatians 2. Then I swear we'll actually get into the text. Galatians 2. Oh, let's start at verse 9. That's a good place to start. No, verse 7. Let's start at verse 7. Genesis 1.1. No, chapter 2, verse 1. Let's just start there. After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Okay, in Jerusalem they recognized these are Gentiles. They don't have to be circumcised. Timothy, Jewish mother, he does need to be circumcised. But even in Jerusalem they recognized that the Gentiles were a different breed. But it was because of the false brethren who sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Jesus Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God knows no partiality. Well... Those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectively worked for me also to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John. Those are the big three that are in Jerusalem. Those are the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Those are the elders, Peter, John, and James. They, seeing the grace that had been given to me, they were reputed to be pillars, pillars, leaders of the Jerusalem church. But they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they would go to who? circumcised the circumcised that's who James is going to I'm just building up my evidence here I just want you to keep seeing the evidence they only ask that we remember the poor the very thing that I was eager to do but when Peter came Cephas came to Antioch I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for prior to the coming of certain men from who from James. Okay, so there are some that come from James to Galatia who see Peter and they know that Peter is part of the Jerusalem church and what they see Peter doing 
is eating with Gentiles, something that the Jerusalem church wouldn't agree with. And so what does Peter do? He acts like he wasn't doing that. Where did the men come from? From Jerusalem, from James. So I just want you to see that James's approach and attitude is different than the Pauline approach and attitude to Gentiles. So Paul finishes writing, For prior to the coming of men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Why? Because he has to go back to Jerusalem. When he gets there, they're going to be saying, hey, you, you broke the law. You ate with the Gentiles. You're not ritually pure. You can't go into the temple now. You, they're going to charge him with all kinds of stuff. So he dissembles because Peter, John, and James are leading the Jerusalem church. And when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in the presence of all of them, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul wraps him up in his own argument. James 1.1. 1, 1. We got there. James 1.1. 1, 1. The introduction is over. James, doulos, servant, slave, bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Gentile church in Smyrna, Tennessee, who are not dispersed at all and who gather on a regular basis. Is that who it's to? No. It's not who it's to. To the 12 tribes, those are Israelites, who are diaspora, dispersed abroad, to them, he says, greetings. Now, the reason they are scattered, the reason they're in this diaspora state, the reason they're out of Jerusalem and not gathering regularly in Jerusalem is because of the persecution in Jerusalem. And so, since apostles are being killed, since Stephen has been killed, since James the Less has been killed, since there's been all this persecution against the Christians in Jerusalem, they are now scattering out of Jerusalem. But they're still under the leadership, under the headship of James. And so James writes to those very people. And the first thing he says to them, the first imperative is, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Because they were under trial. They were under horrific circumstances. And away from home, and running for their lives. And James writes to them and says, Be happy! Consider it all joy when this happens to you. Why? Because he's going to say that it's for the purpose of building up your endurance, building up your patience. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces Patience. Oftentimes through the now quite a few years that I've been doing this, I've asked various different groups, have you ever gone through something where you've heard yourself say, this one's going to kill me? And then a bunch of hands go up. And then the next question I ask is, 
and how many of you died? And of course, none of the hands go up. Because I'm sure everybody in this room can testify that the trials that you go through build your confidence, build your faith in God because you can look back now on the previous trial and say, he got me through that. If he got me through that, he'll probably get me through this. I'm going to endure this. I'm going to be patient in this because he's been faithful to me all along. That's what Paul writes to the Corinthians. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not tempt you beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. For what reason? So that you may be able to bear it. So James is saying that the trials that the believers are going through are going to build their patience and their endurance, and they're going to learn that patience the hard way. There's an old statement somewhere. I can't claim that this is my statement, but there's an old statement that says when you pray for things from God don't pray for patience because he'll teach you patience and usually the hard way and that's what James is getting at so what do you do verse 4 let that patience let that endurance have its perfect result it's there for a reason it's there for a purpose it's going to teach you something let it have its perfect result so that you may be Full up, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing in your faith. All right, that seems like a good place to stop because at least I can say we made it to the book of James. We're into the book of James now. Next week we'll start looking at the imperatives, we'll start talking about how it applied to the early church, and how we can apply these things to us because there is some very good practical advice in the book of James. I just want you to understand when you see some of the imperatives and you think, wow, is he talking about me? Is he talking about the church? At one point, James actually calls the people he's writing to because you'll notice that he didn't just say he's writing to believers. He's writing to the scattered diaspora. He refers to them as adulterers and adulteresses. Well, you don't find that language written to the church anywhere. How does that apply to the church? That's something that you find all the way through the Old Testament. That's Old Testament prophetic language. The adultery of Israel as they chase their other gods. But that's not church language. And so you have to see those distinctions as we go through the book in order to understand who the audience is that James is writing to. As long as you understand that, I think this will be a fruitful study that we're all going to come away with something significant. Worth it? Because I can do something else. This is a big week for starting stuff. This Wednesday night, we'll be starting the book of Ezekiel. So this week, it's James and Ezekiel because you all want to see me do the work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I've got my plate plenty full at this point. So be here Wednesday if you want to delve into Ezekiel with us. And uh, are there any other announcements? That's it. We're all good. Okay. Everybody take a deep breath. <sighs> okay. Say goodbye to the internet people. Bye. Okay, say goodbye to yourself. Goodbye, self. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.